Hello and welcome to the Better Human podcast. My name is Adam Wagner and I'm a barrister specialising in human rights. And this podcast is all about human rights. No issue in recent times brings out so many different human rights questions as the coronavirus crisis. So that's what we're going to discuss today. This is an episode in two parts and this is part one. I'm delighted, if that's the right word, to be joined by an expert panel, um, Judith Bueno de Mesquita, who is co-deputy director of the Human Rights Centre and a lecturer of international human rights law at the School of Law in University of Essex, um, Nicola Higgins and Keelan Gallagher, Queen's Counsel, who are both human rights barristers at Doughty Street Chambers, Professor Aoife Nolan, who is a professor of international human rights law at the Faculty of Social Sciences at the University of Nottingham. As always, the podcast is kindly supported by Goldsmiths Law. The Better Human podcast is supported by Goldsmiths Law and their pioneering new LLB law undergraduate course taught in London. With Goldsmiths' rich heritage of social awareness and engagement, you'll study with students and academics passionate about human rights and social justice. As always, you can sponsor the podcast and help keep it going by donating a few pounds a month on our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash better human. Thanks so much, everybody, for joining us um, either in the room, um, suitably so- socially distanced or on um, in your various different locations. Um, so th- this is such a big issue um, and it's a difficult one. And it, obviously the coronavirus brings out or brings to light any number of human rights issues, um, both in the state response, in the way that um, public authorities are dealing with individuals, in the public health response, the world, the, the way we interact with with other countries. It's 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 really the broadest possible spectrum. It's almost like an exam question for you know an, an issue which could bring out every possible human rights issue you could imagine. But what I thought would be useful today is just to think at first about what human rights are and why they are a useful frame to understand this issue, but also to help do make the best policy. And I think I'd, I'd, we were just talking earlier and, and I'd said, I, I'm not even sure there is such a thing as the best policy in this situation. It's kind of what is the least bad or what is the, the policy which is the least likely to be wrong. And I want to try and tease out how a human rights response might assist. And, and one w- way I've been thinking, I'd, I'm just going to explain for a minute what the way I've been thinking about it. Um, and it's it's in this three sort of lenses that I think of when I think of human rights. And the, the first one is that human rights are a, are a description of the human. And I mean that they are a way of understanding what a human is when you break it down to the essentials what does what do human beings need what does it require to for a human to live a dignified life and the and the corollary of that is what are the rights which when you take them away the 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 social goods or the rights or however you want to think about them when you take them away you're taking away someone's humanity in some way or you're attacking someone's humanity so it's kind of descriptive um i think the second way I, i think about human rights is I guess from a negative perspective, as in what are the what how what are the basic protections that you put in place to prevent those essential aspects of the human being being attacked or or taken away? And those perhaps you might think of as civil civil and political rights or freedom from. And and then the third way is the getting into the positive rights. So we call them as, as academics and lawyers, positive rights. But I think positive is the right word because it's a bit more of a progressive understanding of human rights, that human rights gives us the framework to allow societies to become better, to become better for more people, to allow more people to flourish and to have all those um, all those basic rights honoured. Um, and, and, and there you get into more of the kind of public health um, t- type issues, the social welfare, these these uh, positive interventions that you can make that can make society better for, for more people. So there's the kind of descriptive side, there's the protection from, and then there's the positive, how you protect more people and ensure that more people can flourish. And that's the kind of way that I, that I think about rights. And in in a sense, 
when you're considering a huge new issue, new-ish issue, or feels quite new, like coronavirus, sometimes we, we, we're looking at all of those different things at the same time and trying to understand how to intervene um, through those different perspectives. And I wanted to ask, the first question I wanted to ask each of you is, from your perspective and from your experience and your expertise, how do you think human rights can help understand and react to this crisis? Um, and I, I think I'll start with Jude, if that's okay. Thank you very much, Adam. Um, so I'm going to uh, provide a few remarks, particularly focusing on international human rights standards um, and encompassing both civil and political rights, but also particularly uh, economic, social and cultural rights with a focus on the right to health. So so why is uh, human rights important in the context of the COVID-19 outbreak and our responses to it? Firstly, I would like to point out that it is, in fact, a matter of obligation under international law and domestic law. Um, so if we're looking at... Um, at the right, at the rights we have international treaties like the Co International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, the ECHR, and at the domestic level, the Human Rights Act. Secondly, um, I think it's extremely important in terms of secure, securing the dignity and well-being of affected individuals and groups. Um, so as Adam has pointed out, really, this is one of the core purposes of human rights. Um, and thirdly, really, human rights can help support effective, um, sustainable responses to the outbreak. And international experience increasingly shows that the respect of human rights, um, including the right to health, the right to privacy, equality, pro prohibition of torture, is absolutely vital for public health. Um, and this includes in the context of infectious disease control when we look at issues like HIV AIDS, tuberculosis, um, Ebola um, and SARS, for example. And what we find at the international level, and we've been hearing very much about how we need to ensure that the UK follows international um, evidence and guidance, but what we find at the international level is that actors like the World Health Organization now routinely incorporate human rights into their public health work, their guidance and public health work across the, the world. And human rights is really a social determinant of health. Um, so just to say one last thing, so um, or two last things. The right to health is, I think, one of the most fundamental human rights uh, when it comes to responding to the COVID-19 crisis. And perhaps I'll talk a bit later about what that means. Um, secondly, you know, there are some concerns about whether human rights um, can are, are a limitation on the possibility of the government to respond. But what international human rights law sets out extremely carefully and clearly is that uh, in the context of public health emergencies, it is in some circumstances legitimate uh, to impose some limitations on human rights, notably association, assembly, uh, um, and freedom of expression and, and movement. There's very stringent criteria about the types of um, procedures um, that need to be followed for that, but, but, but it, can be, it, it can be done under international law. Um, my final point really is that human rights follow a normative logic in that we have international domestic standards which tell us what, um, what, uh, what a government can and can't do. But what is absolutely essential uh, when responding to a public health crisis is that we also take very close account of the evidence from the field of public health and particularly from the field of epidemiology. So human rights are really nothing in a public health crisis if we're not listening to our, ex our colleagues who are experts in the field of public health. Thank you. Aoife, do you want to go next? Yeah. So I think human rights have a crucial role to play in the context of uh, the COVID-19 pandemic crisis that we're facing at the moment, both internationally and domestically. I think the key thing to remember about human rights, uh, building on your excellent introduction, Adam, is the fact that they're not just about um, 
interference with liberty. They're not just about making sure that people are kept safe in their homes. Human rights have a very important role to play in terms of shaping positive state action focused on protecting people who are at risk of COVID-19, responding to the needs of people who are at risk of COVID-19 or who are experiencing COVID-19, and indeed with regards to shaping policy, law, and you know local authority decision-making, for instance, when it comes to addressing the, the really challenging issues that they have to face on a day-to-day -day level uh, because of the pandemic situation that they're faced with at the moment. And I think human rights does a number of important things. Right now, a rational, Alicia Yamin, who's a, a, a public health expert and human rights expert um, in the US, has, made, has said completely correctly that there is very little, you know, that, there, that a, an equitable and rational public health response and human rights are highly compatible, right? So it's not choosing one over the other. This isn't me saying, or indeed any of us saying, it has to be human rights that is the primary discourse for framing and analyzing and for shaping the response when it comes to COVID-19. However, human rights have a very important role when it comes for a number of reasons, and they offer a number of things that, for instance, I think public health don't. And this is what pub human rights really have to be taken into account to tweak public health responses or state responses that have negative implications for human rights. So, for instance, if we think about the fact, if we think about human rights and the emphasis on the position and the rights of particularly vulnerable groups. This is something that's really central, this need to ensure non-discrimination and equality. Often when we talk about equality, we think, oh, you know, it's about not stereotyping or discriminating people, for instance, in the UK, for instance, in the context of perhaps stop and search. Whereas, in fact, when it comes to COVID-19, human rights, uh, particularly international human rights, make very clear that, in fact, we need to take positive measures. We need to provide a special and targeted support to ensure equal enjoyment of the right to health and various other human rights of particularly vulnerable groups, you know, whether it be older persons, uh, disabled people, children, etc. And the final thing I'd flag with regards to human rights is that I think they're very good if we think about human rights, and I'm not just talking about the perhaps rather narrow frame of the UK Human Rights Act, the European Convention, if we think about the whole uh, spectrum of human rights under international human rights law. These serve as a very good framework against which to assess government policy and what it's missing. So for instance, it was only when we started when we started talking about school closures in the UK and elsewhere, we started hearing discussions of the right to education. When we heard references to, you know, and the implications for the child's right to food due to the closure of school meals, human rights makes us think more broadly beyond a specific policy context to think about how do we give effect to the needs and the interests of human beings generally and the needs and interests of vulnerable people in particular. Keelan. Thanks, Adam. Uh, well, I'm tempted to say I agree with everything that's gone before. Uh, so I very much agree with the helpfulness of your three lenses, Adam, with Jude's point about the value of the, the framework and the importance of evidence-based policymaking in this sphere, and Aoife on uh, the crucial role that human rights has to play, both in shaping positive state action, and also importantly, I think, when you turn to interference with individual rights, human rights gives a very important analytical framework including concepts of proportionality, balancing rights, recognising the weight that needs to be given to group issues and wider public issues and individual uh, human rights. So there's a couple of things I wanted to flag just additional to what's been said. Um, first of all, uh, Sanchita Hosali from the British Institute of Human Rights in a very powerful blog in the last few days said human rights are our roadmap for peacetimes and times of crisis. And I think that's a really useful phrase. And I think human rights are a very useful roadmap for all the reasons, Adam, that you, Jude and Aoife have flagged so far. Uh, and uh, I think when we think about positive state actions and positive state obligations, as well as thinking about obligations on protecting vulnerable groups in the health context and thinking about those who the WHO, for example, has identified as being most at risk of contracting COVID-19 and most at risk uh, of having catastrophic health results if they do, 
Uh, we also need to start thinking about positive obligations in, in another context. As soon as you have a situation where schools are closed or access to schools are restricted, that causes fundamental issues for the most vulnerable children in society. So the way in which many children are identified as being at risk of abuse or neglect or trafficking is through the school framework, through non-attendance at school or through markers being identified in a school environment. So as soon as we've got this unprecedented shutdown, uh, we lose some of those abilities to identify some of the most vulnerable people in society. Similarly, uh, I've been looking at a lot of the material on domestic and gender-based violence. And as soon as you've got a situation where people are confined to home or more likely to be confined to home, uh, that causes real problems for women in particular and those at risk of gender-based violence. Uh, there's one other broader point that I just wanted to flag at two. Uh, I do think there's a historic issue about how diseases are interpreted by the people uh, that they threaten. And of course, that changes over time and cultures. But one long-standing common factor is a tendency to view disease as coming from somewhere else, from other people. And sometimes you get examples of diseases being given a human face and an association with individuals or groups. And it's then associated with vilification. And that's a very common and long-standing thing when people are confronted by a new and frightening illness. Uh, there's often a tendency to create scapegoats and you get this totally misguided means of coping with fear, focusing on blame and bolstering prejudices. And that was very much in my mind when I heard the phrase in the last few days by Donald Trump referring to the Chinese disease. And I think we also need to bear that in mind because if you look back at history, marginal groups, minorities and the poor have often been common targets in cir circumstances such as this. So Jews, for example, were widely blamed for the Black Death. Immigrant Irish workers were held responsible for cholera epidemics in the 1830s. And indeed, Catholics were blamed for the Great Fire of London. And blame can often be international. If you look at the syphilis example, um, in Renaissance Europe, it became a classic example of passing the blame. So syphilis was christened the French disease by the British. The French held the Italians responsible. Uh, they returned the compliment. Uh, the Dutch blamed the Spanish. The Russians blamed the Poles. And in Japan, uh, they thought the Portuguese were at fault. Um, in Turkey, uh, they called it the Christian disease. Uh, and uh, when in 1769, Captain Cook observed the disease on Tahiti, it was known to all islanders as the British disease. So I think there is also an issue. And I think in light of that um, phrase, the Chinese disease, in the last few days, we also need to be very careful that this isn't an excuse for scapegoating and for bolstering prejudices. Nicola, do you want to um, give your thoughts on the, the, the general question? Yeah, just to add, I've been considering the application of human rights um, in the context of quarantine in particular. And I've, I've been reflecting that human rights at a time of public health crisis is really a safeguard against disproportionality. It ensures that the powers exercised by government that erode our civil liberties for the common good are only those strictly necessary. It ensures that the rights of individuals who are subject to quarantine are prejudiced only to the extent absolutely necessary for the good of the wider community. And as a point already touched upon by Aoife, the human rights expose areas where our policies and checks and balances are slightly less well-developed as I think they are in relation to quarantine. I, I'm, I'm going to pick out on something a couple of you said, which is about times of crisis, because I, I think it's important to focus in on the fact that the modern human rights framework was developed as a response to a time of crisis, you know, a time of a, a kind of 25 year period, which was probably the most, well, among the most acute crisis that the world, the human race has ever experienced, starting with the First World War and the Spanish flu, which were, you know, the Spanish flu is, is something that we have you know, we, I, I think everybody probably heard about it in history lessons and kind of forgot about it. It's never something we focused on too much, but it was for people who are living in the first half of the 20, 20th century would have been one of the most important things that happened in their lives, quite clearly. Um, but the First World War, the Spanish flu, the Second World War, the Holocaust, you know, all of these cataclysmic events. And the these these human rights, as as um, Keelan's quoting Sanchita Hazali said, these are a kind of blueprint of how to deal with with times of crisis. Because, um, and this is what I want to put out, it seems that they they are a way of understanding and remembering 
what human societies tend to do in times of crisis, which is to blame whoever the convenient scapegoat is. You know, so if you have a group in the country you don't particularly like, they will tend to get the blame, as you know, Keelan's list of all of the different groups that got blamed for um for, for the cholera. Um and you will societies tend to sort of close in. And I think picking up on something Nicholas said, you get all, all of a sudden, all of these sort of otherwise invisible, usually invisible levers and mechanisms and structures are revealed. Um, and you better hope that they're, that they're fit for purpose, because if they're not, you're, you're going to get into trouble. And you see that all around the world. And what, what I was just I was going to ask is, do you think we're seeing societies which are going to really struggle with this crisis in an existential way? Or do you think that the these kind of liberal institutions are quite well set up and we just need to engage them? So I think it's very interesting. And I know that other, other contributors will have a lot to say about the crisis context. And I am absolutely with you, Adam. Human rights, bread of, you know, world international human rights bred from the crisis of crises of world war ii etc etc right however what i have to say about human rights in terms of added value and also about the current pandemic is that if we look at the current crisis human rights also requires us to look at what has caused and contributed to the crises right and that means that for instance if we look at say covid19 the event we also have to look at existing state structures and distributions and how they have fed into the vulnerability of the state of states to particular events or to particular crises right so what i'm saying is that human rights analysis it's not just about how does the state respond to the crisis and how acceptable is that in terms of you know proportionality analysis it's very much about saying well actually how is it that the state is in this particular position when the crisis comes knocking on the door right so how is it when we take a human rights analysis we have to look at things like you know or one can choose to take a look at things like you know long-term outsourcing of particular government functions in some situations that means that when it comes to for instance providing support to vulnerable people in the context of the current crisis there's huge dependence on the charity sector rather than on the government itself right and that isn't because of covid-19 that isn't because of a short-term crisis that is because of long-term social and economic policy ideology and decision making and so I suppose my point in this situation is to say, yes, the crisis is extremely important because it really, to some degree, demonstrates shortcomings and challenges in a new light faced with a new issue. But in fact, many of the problems that are being identified are longstanding ones. And what a crisis can sometimes do is, you know, kind of, uh, I suppose, lift the cover off long-standing problems from, hum from a human rights perspective. And I really do feel that that's what we're having here. So the suggestion, the reason that I'm emphasizing this is that by all this talk of crisis suggests that once COVID-19 is over, actually things will be fine for human rights. But in fact, they weren't fine before. They're clearly not fine now. And there is no suggestion that the, res that the, that the responses that are being taken to COVID-19 are going to address some of the systemic and structural issues and underlying inequalities that has led to COVID-19 having the impact that it has had internationally anyway. Okay, so yes, it's about the crisis. And yes, human rights have something to say about the crisis. But in fact, human rights require so much more beyond before and after the crisis that in some ways, I'm a little bit nervous of crisis framing because it sort of means, well, in you know, six months or two years, everything might be fine from a human rights perspective when it just isn't true. Keelan. Uh, so I'm afraid this podcast, Adam, is going to consist of a lot of Irish women agreeing with each other. Uh, but I, I, I couldn't, That's I couldn't, fine. We, we can we can rebrand it. Irish women agreeing with each other. <laughs> I, could, I couldn't agree more with what Aoife has just said uh, and about human rights not being thought of only in a responsive context. I mean, the reality is here, and I want to give two examples, one health one and one related to local authorities, uh, that welfare cuts over a long period of time and cuts to the health budget have left the UK in particular in a much weaker position 
to now deal with the coronavirus crisis. So two examples. First of all, on the healthcare side, the UK has far fewer ICU beds per capita than Italy, for example. So the OECD figures released earlier this week show the the UK has 6.6 ICU beds per 100,000 people, compared with Germany's 29.2, Italy's 12.5, France's 9.7. And that is a result of long-term underinvestment and cuts to the health service. Similarly, much of my work involves uh, acting for vulnerable children in a context where they've been failed by local authorities. And you've got a situation where over a long period, over the last decade, there have been swinging cuts to local authority budgets, which have undermined the ability of local authorities to comply with their statutory obligations to the most vulnerable children. And that again is going to play out when you have, as I indicated at the outset, a situation where schools are closed. And of course, there are some measures for vulnerable children to still be attending school. But you've got a situation where when they need local authority support, Most local authorities are coping on a shoestring and it's a shoestring they've had to manage over a very long period of time because of these cuts. So we must not just be responsive. We also need to think about what human rights has to say about leaving us in that position. The Better Human podcast is supported by your contributions. If you find it useful and interesting, I would really appreciate if you consider giving just $3 a month. That's just over £2 via our Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash better human. And if a couple of hundred people do that, then that will make the podcast sustainable and I can carry on interviewing interesting guests about fascinating human rights subjects. It's, it's interesting that, that they've just released the um, the list of key workers who will be who will who, who the schools will stay open for and for under the heading key public services it says this includes those essential to the running of the justice system that's good um, relig- religious staff charities and workers delivering key frontline services um, yeah. so so I mean, I mean and that 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 exactly um, reflects what you were saying Aoife, that the that the Chari- there's so many charities that are now delivering key frontline services and, and i noticed when i think it was matt, Han- matt, Han- matt hancock i didn't um i didn't hear the name of the interviewee but on radio 4 this morning he was speaking and and, I, and, I, and i've heard this a lot from boris johnson as well it's, it's it's a lot about this kind of big society idea of let's all just look after each other and 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 do what's best for everybody else and just volunteer to to help and um blitzkrieg spirit kind of thing and it is it does feel a bit ideological um and and i'm just not i i mean I, i'm not a, a scientist so i don't know about the enough about the behavioral science behind everything but it all the uk's approach does feel quite um I, i'm not sure trusting but sort of ex- hoping that people will do the right thing because there isn't enough state or they don't want to provide enough state to force people to do the right thing um, which is a bit of a strange way to put it from a human rights perspective, because some ordinarily as human rights advocates, you're saying no, no, the, the state's doing, the state's intervening too much. But it sounds like we're kind of saying, well, maybe it's time for the state to intervene more during this crisis. I think just very quickly, I would say that a lot of human rights people, it depends on your perspective. I think that lots of people who've been working on welfare, and I'm talking about the UK here, but internationally as well, austerity issues like structural debt. I, I, I mean, I think that when you've looked at issues like welfare and austerity, uh, very few people who do human rights work in that area suggest that it's a case of actually the state needs to do less. And that's not because obviously human rights do not prescribe a particular model, economic model. They absolutely don't. They don't, for instance, prohibit privatization, but they do envisage a certain amount of state intervention to ensure that people enjoy a certain adequate standard of right, when in areas like health, social security, food, etc. Right. So I think inevitably uh, the emphasis in that situation of people who work on areas like poverty or who have you know work on things like the connection between economic policy and human rights, the emphasis has been very much upon the state having to do more rather than a laissez-faire attitude. Yeah, I, I, I fully agree with um, what everybody else has said, and I also wanted to raise a slightly different point, um, which is. That this is really the in, in in our country this is an um, and in the world it's an unprecedented global health crisis, um, but let us not also forget that there have been many other 
um, infectious disease crises in recent years. Um, just to mention a few, HIV AIDS, a big one uh, throughout the world, which has also, of course, affected our country. On the radio, they were saying this morning, there's still 36 million people infected with HIV um, across Absolutely. the world. As, as yeah. and, they're, and they're one of the most vulnerable um, groups of people in the context of COVID-19, of course, too. Um, there's also been the Ebola crisis um, and... Um, uh, and the um, problems associated with treatment of tuberculosis, especially multi-drug resistant tuberculosis. And then there was also, of course, the SARS outbreak. Um, and, and so so there is has been quite a lot of thinking at the international level in terms of how human rights um, can respond in such crises. And it's, I think for that reason, it's really important that as a community in the UK, a community of um, human rights experts, a community of public health practitioners that we look outwards. We don't just look in in terms of our own society. Of course, it's vital we do that, but we also can look out outwards to learn um, about uh, what some of the strengths and weaknesses have been from these other experiences in terms of how to balance sort of public health and human rights considerations. And and what do you think? It, it, could could you, in a nutshell? run through a couple of those thing, the things that we've learned or should have learned from those other crises yeah um well I, th I think at the heart of things is that we need to look at the full range of human rights which are affected so within the uk we because of our domestic legal framework we we tend to particularly focus on uh, civil and political rights um which are the main right group of rights which are um protected in our domestic law and the human rights act um, but of course, uh, we also have economic, social and cultural rights like health, education, food, shelter, for example, the right to work, the prohibition of torture, the right to freedom of association, freedom of assembly, the right to freedom of movement. These are some of the um, some of the rights, the right to privacy, some important rights which are relevant in the context of public health um, crises. Um, but when it comes to the right to health, states have a number of obligations. So you look at the covenant on economic social and cultural rights they have to take steps for the prevention treatment and control of epidemic diseases um, and those obligations include an obligation both in terms of health care to create conditions to assure to all medical services and medical attention in the event of sickness but it also includes obligations to promote and protect um, social determinants of health so obligations um, in the broader communities that we live in um, and, and work in. Um, so so that's, that's one side of things. Uh, but there's significant experience when it comes to um, protection of those rights when it, with other epidemics, but also in terms of cases where um, there may be questions about whether we can limit some of these civil and political rights, like association, assembly, freedom of movement and freedom of expression. Um, and, and I think, you know, in, in some cases there are recognised to be, um, to, for that to play an important role, but it shouldn't be done at the expense of um, a, a strong focus um, on the, the really sort of basic um, and frontline public health interventions that, that are needed and which are actually going to be very, very important, perhaps most critical interventions when it comes to um, preventing the spread and, and um ensuring the access to treatment of, of COVID-19. So it has to be a balanced approach. And, and when there are limitations, as I said before, um, there's quite stringent criteria. Um, and those include they must be grounded in law, they must be strictly necessary. Um, and very importantly, they have to be based on scientific evidence um, and they can't be discriminatory. Can we dig down now into a couple of the specific issues? Excellent. Um, I, I want to dig down into a couple of the specific issues. And, and the, the most visible one at the moment, I think, worldwide is quarantine and restrictions on movement, because that is the one which millions of people are currently experiencing and I, and I was just reading um you know just a few miles away from where we're sat in in paris 
the the current rules in Paris that under a pain of a fine, everyone is told to stay at home unless they have a valid cause. If you're stopped by police, you need to have a document with you giving your address and your reason for your trip, which can be one of five essential work, medical, urgent family matters, food shopping, or a brief excursion for exercise or to walk the dog. I mean, personally, I would have thought the dog itself would be evidence of the dog rather than the form filled in. But that's, I mean, I guess that's for them to figure out. But if you don't have the document, your reason is deemed to be fake or unsatisfactory and then you're in breach of the law and thousands of fines have already been imposed. I mean, these are, you know, if we just, if I described that to you in Paris a month ago, I think you would have just said that's something out of dystopian fiction or, or a wartime drama, not something from a, from a disease. So, I, I, and I want to talk about with, with, with Keelan and Nicola in particular, you've got some direct experience of, of how the quarantine was working in the early days um, in a case that you dealt with. And do you want to just talk about the the particular human rights focus, the sort of right to liberty, and and how that played out in your in the instance that you dealt with? Our clients were three uh, British citizens, uh, aged between sixty eight and seventy four, who were on holiday uh, in Tenerife at the Costa Deje Palace Resort, and uh, they received a note under the door which informed them that the hotel had closed. And there was no other information available. And they were told that they had to remain in their rooms until further notice. Uh, They were thereafter quarantined for a period of 10 days, uh, during which time they were not permitted to leave the hotel, obviously. It was shut with a padlock. There were police officers with very large machine guns outside the perimeter of the hotel. But the safeguards for them within the hotel left something to be desired. For example, they were issued with uh, one mask each for the duration of their quarantine. So that's like a surgical mask or a mask uh, to prevent infection? Yes. uh, uh, Notably, um, of a different quality, inferior quality to those provided to the staff, and to those provided to uh, the police officers on on the exterior of the hotel, which raises issues of discrimination, obviously. Uh, No gloves were provided. Um, They were required to take their meals in the buffet restaurant. That um, meant that they were forced to line up with hundreds of other individuals. This was the hotel with over 800 guests in it at that time. Uh, They had to use the same tongs as everybody else in order to select their food. The guests were permitted to circulate throughout the hotel. The wearing of masks was not, in fact, enforced, and and the pool was in use throughout. So um, it's interesting that um, because it raises a question about what is the purpose of quarantine? Um, The WHO has issued no guidance in relation to quarantine, how it ought to be conducted. There's no generally applied international standard. Uh, It appears that each state is up, it's up to each state how it wants to apply quarantine. But I I think that human rights um, plays a part here because it is important for us to answer when devising rules of quarantine. What is the purpose of it? Is it in order to protect the wider community? And therefore, are we going to permit infection to Um, move freely within the confines of the particular hotel or cruise ship that we're talking about? Or is the purpose of quarantine also to protect the individual guests who are within the hotel? And if that is the case, and quarantine needs to be conducted very differently to how we've seen it conducted on the particular cruise ships and and, and in the instance of this particular hotel. And Adam, uh, just agreeing with what Nicola said, you know, this is brought into acute focus by the fact that uh, there are reports of one of the individual's on the Diamond Princess cruise ship, who was previously fit and healthy, contracting the disease while in the quarantine period and subsequently dying. And there were many examples in the Tenerife Hotel of individuals who were fit and healthy and who contracted the disease during the quarantine period. So there's a couple of things I just wanted to say about the individuals in quarantine and then a broader point about the necessity of the quarantine in the Tenerife case. So the first point is... um, there were, in addition to the failures that Nicholas identified, there were some fundamentally basic errors in Tenerife. For example, our clients and other guests in the hotel learned the most basic information about why they were being held in their rooms from the TV news. So the note they got under their door didn't tell them this was a coronavirus case, simply said, stay in your room. 
They had very limited information. They learned more by turning on and watching what broadcasters were telling them and getting text messages from families than they did from hotel and public health officials directly. Um, The second issue, uh, I think, is there was no system internally within the hotel for prioritising those who were elderly or had comorbidities, had underlying health conditions. And this was all at precisely the same time that WHO chiefs were saying publicly the over 60s and those with underlying health conditions should not be in crowded places. And simultaneously in the hotel, our clients and others with a similar age profile or health profile were being told to go and queue in a queue of 600 people to get their food or in a queue of 600 people to get information about the quarantine. So there was a fundamental failure within the confines of the quarantine to protect those most at risk. And um, The other broader issue then is... Um, Under Article 5 of the European Convention, the right to liberty, there is, of course, an exception in relation to the lawful detention of persons for the purpose of prevention of the spreading of infectious diseases. And there's very limited case law on that. But the case law which is available makes clear that the detention must be a last resort. And what ended up happening in the Tenerife example is it became clear it was not a last resort because the system which was being applied was utterly ad hoc. So within days, staff who were asymptomatic were allowed to come and go freely. But in the meantime, guests who were asymptomatic were not. Uh, Then there was priority given to some guests, regardless of their age profile, regardless of their health profile, simply based on their travel agent. So if they were traveling with a particular travel agent, they were able to freely leave and return to the UK when other guests were not. So uh, there was a problem in any event with there being a system which was Article 5 compliant and which was inherently logical um, within the hotel. And we should bear that in mind. It's a cautionary tale of how not to do it, I think Nicola and I would say. Absolutely. And uh Also to mention that I think when uh, an individual is in quarantine, it is absolutely essential that they understand the basis for that and that the information which they are given is accurate and reliable at all times. And in this particular instance, the the Spanish order uh, which uh, permitted the quarantine to take place wasn't provided for several days. When it was provided, it was only provided in Spanish. And then it was missing crucial annexes that could have led to the release of our clients. So for the purposes of understanding your detention, being able to challenge your detention, the provision of information to those who are under the quarantine is absolutely essential. And we saw it totally deficient in this instance. I, I mean, that all, that all seems a long time ago now, in, in, in a way, that the, the, pe- the, the states are worrying about particular buildings and, and, and cruise ships. And it seems, I mean, what what I think we're going to be seeing in the next few weeks and months is is all those issues, but on a much, much greater scale. I mean, when when you start, it's one thing putting people in a particular hotel and telling them they can't leave. Once you put them in their own houses and tell them they can't leave, you know, for, for example, under the new emergency bill that we'll talk about a bit later, um, there is a power to quarantine people who are either have the disease or are suspected of having the disease. So that could be, you know, the whole population practically in a few weeks' time. Once you start detaining people in their own homes, how is it even possible for the state to apply these sort of the rules we we are used to for the relatively limited quarant- uh, a detention of, of individuals in prisons or mental health settings or, you know, other or border settings? But yeah. Adam, will, I think the other question is, and I'm sorry to interrupt. No, no, you're not interested. The question interested. is, will, you're, you're, will the state it. need to? Because in fact, is it likely that people in their homes, in conditions in which they feel safe and relatively well informed, will feel the need to challenge in that way? I think it's important. I mean, I think the, the particular position of the client of the clients that uh, Nicola and Keelan are talking about is important. I mean, I think it's very important that we, we move away from, that we don't appear to suggest, and I'm sure this isn't what you're suggesting, the quarantine in and of itself is problematic. No, no not, because, not, not yeah, at all. Yeah, because not I know that is, wouldn't be, wouldn't be, because then we'd be just bordering on libertarianism and, in a and, way that and, would be highly problematic from any human rights perspective. And, and there's a big risk of the of of any human rights advocate who is saying well we've got to look at the the details here of what's going on being interpreted as saying no no you can't quarantine people because everyone should be free to do what they want you know to live as they choose or whatever the words of the song are um 
because and i don't think any anybody but libertarians and or even extreme anarchist libertarians would be saying that human rights certainly allows for quarantine even mass quarantine because you've got to as particularly in the short term protect protect tens of thousands of people who could die the twin criteria um which human rights law has in relation to detention are firstly whether the spreading of the infectious disease is dangerous to public health and safety, and clearly that box is ticked in the case of COVID-19, but secondly whether detention of the person infected is the last resort in order to prevent the spreading of the disease because less severe measures have been considered and found to be insufficient to safeguard the public interest. And while I, along with Jude and others, have much to say that's very critical of the British government uh, response to COVID-19, one place where... uh, the UK government and other governments have got it right, is saying, well, we're going to recommend social distancing or social isolation, and we'll only consider more draconian measures if those less severe measures fail. And that's a human rights compliant approach. I mean, there's a whole series of other problems with the uh, UK government's response. But that that chronology of saying, we'll try this, and unless these measures fail, uh, we don't need to turn to the more draconian measure is a human rights compliant focus. Jude. Adam, I think, um, thank you for all your comments. I think you're right that it feels like a long time ago that we were discussing um, quarantine in hotels and cruise ships. But one of the fundamental lessons we need uh, to think about, which comes out from this question is, if people are being um, confined and um, and quarantined and self-isolating is how in that context, we, uh, the state um, and, and communities can continue uh, to support these people so that their, um, you know, their basic living um, needs or rights, if you like, are, are being met. And, and that is a really huge challenge, especially for uh, vulnerable people, for, for elderly persons, persons who need, who need care. But that, that seems to be a really important point, because once, you, once the state is responsible for everybody staying in their home, the state becomes also responsible for ensuring that their basic needs are met because nobody else can do it. Yeah, Jude, do you want to come back in? Yeah, the other point is I, I think it's very interesting to see the contrast in, pro, in, in approach that we have here between the UK government, um, which has gone for a much more sort of permissive line in terms of um, you know advising us to self-isolate and to social socially distance to, to the line that's been taken in uh, very many other countries, whether it's China, where, you know, we might have expected more of a a sort of top-down approach, um, or also uh, our friends and neighbours more more closer by in in Italy um, and Spain and uh, Germany, for example. And so so what is the evidence behind the different approach that we're taking here when when we've seen uh, in other countries that the governments have felt a need to have a much more... Uh, restrictive um, approach. Um, and, and of course, um, you know, I'm a great supporter of, of individual liberties. Um, but the big question really is whether, um, with the approach that's that's being promoted now, is whether the population um, is, is going to comply with the measures? Is it going to be enough um, in order to bring the transmission rates down and to save uh, the lives that, that, are, that are at risk? Well, well, I, I, I mean, I, I just throw something out there. It's from listening to the government. It seems that economic considerations have played quite a big role in their balancing exercise. That maybe, maybe more of a role than in France, Germany, and Italy, because the government seems to be saying, in part, we're going to shut down as little of the of the economy. Forget the we're going to shut down as as few individual liberties. We're going to shut down as little of the economy as we can, as slowly as we can, in balance with you know pre- preventing people from getting the disease. Yeah, Jude. At this points to one of the really big problems that we have in terms of how government decision making has has been has been taking place, which is there's been quite a lot a limited. There's been very limited transparency. We don't really know what has led the government to adopt the position it has. Um, and here, I'd like to really highlight some of the concerns that have been raised repeatedly from the outset by leading global public health experts who also live in the UK, like Richard Horton, who's editor of The Lancet, and um, Professor Anthony Costello from UCL, who's worked for many years also with with WHO. Uh, You know, they've been very uh, concerned about the the limited transparency, uh, both in terms of how the different types of considerations are being 
balanced against one another, but also in terms of the public health evidence that was being used to guide the earlier UK responses. I mean, the change has now, there has now been a change after this imperial study came out, but but generally it points to this, this issue about limited transparency. It, it seems to me, again, just turning to human rights on this, that uh, governments are responsible for providing information necessary for the protection and the promotion of rights, including the right to health. And the Committee on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights regards as a core obligation providing education and access to information concerning the main health problems in the community, including methods of preventing and controlling them. And for me, it seems that a rights-respecting response to COVID-19 needs to ensure that accurate and up-to-date information about the virus and the basis for government decision-making is readily available and accessible to all. And this transparency point Jude makes is critical, and it's critical from a rights perspective too. And we saw that when, if you think of, uh, say, the Irish and the Danish uh, approach, which hasn't involved military on the streets or anything, and has in one sense been permissive, um, but has gone much further than uh, the UK government, for example, with enforced shutting down of businesses, um, like pubs and so on. Uh, But the approach they've taken to people staying in their homes hasn't been to enforce quarantine. It's been to ask for people at a much earlier stage uh, to remain at home and to exercise social isolation and social distancing, depending on the categories of case. Also to to reduce the reasons for them to go out of the door, such as closing the pubs. Yeah, of course, and and closing closing schools. They made the decision on schools much earlier. But I think for many of us, um, it's been incredibly frustrating to have the situation that Jude has described where there's been so little public health evidence provided to support the UK's outlier position, only for a number of days later, the UK to then say, well, the changing evidence picture now shows us we should be closing the school. You know, when you think, but you're describing precisely the same evidence base that the Irish spoke about openly a week ago. So, I I mean, yeah. Sorry, just to intervene there and to build on Jude's comments and to build on Keelan's comments. I mean, I think ultimately, you know, we can sit there and go, these are about the human rights principles to account, you know, accountability, transparency, participation, evidence driven. These are basic tenets of good governance. Right. And I think what's interesting is that hopefully some of the human rights discussion can help refocus on the quality of governance or not um, as, as the crisis develops, because I think. To go back to, you know, the standards and the general comment that Keelan has spoken about, there is a huge issue around mixed messages. It's not just about providing information. It's about coherence, effective communication. At the moment, we have a situation where, and it was very interesting, one of the things that the Irish Prime Minister uh, said in his St. Patrick's Day speech was about how could people please not follow messages from unofficial sources because they spread misinformation. And the danger is that where one has inadequate information from the state or justification for action, people understandably psychologically reach for that information from other sources, which in turn can undermine public health efforts quite disastrously. And I, I there is evidence that that is what is happening here as well. I I very much agree with Aoife and I think clarity is central and one of the uh, key concerns which has been raised by people from a whole range of different disciplines in relation to the UK government response has been the incoherence and the lack of clarity uh, combined with uh, the failure to actually provide the evidence base at an early stage. But the mixed messages um, earlier in the week, you know, saying uh, you should be making every effort to stay at home and to minimise your social interaction. But in the meantime, if you've got children of primary or secondary school age, out you go in the morning and out you go in the afternoon and have them mixing with people throughout the day. Uh, that's been very difficult. And for those of us who are court users, there's been completely mixed messages as well about whether non-essential hearings should be proceeding. Um, and what does non-essential mean? Well, precisely. Yeah. But, you know, there, there have been fundamentally mixed messages. And I think clarity is so central. And that's been one of the um, great benefits. I'm afraid I'm being pro-Irish again. But that's been uh, one of the very positive things about the Irish response. The position has been very clear. The lines have been very clear. And it makes it much, much easier for people to follow the rules when the rules are clear and you know the evidence base for them. When Boris Johnson gave his first press release, he um, he said at the worst case scenario, and the worst case scenario was, he didn't give the figure in terms, but if you went away and you worked it out, it was that half a million people would die and the rest of the population would be infected and, and they were hoping they wouldn't... Um, we wouldn't be at that worst case scenario, but that's what it was. And it seems as though um, that has been unpalatable to many and therefore the 
um, conditions which have been imposed have got have got more and more strict with time. But uh, presumably he's using the same scientific modelling as is available to other governments, including the Irish government. And uh, what I'd like to know is what is it about that at that time that was acceptable to uh, Boris Johnson and the other people advising him that half a million people could potentially be at risk. Uh, and every time we get new figures in the press about the number of people who have sadly passed away as a result of COVID-19, we get told that they uh, they were people with underlying health conditions. And I feel slightly uncomfortable with the emphasis that has been placed upon that by the people releasing those statistics. Because what is it about people with underlying health conditions that means that potentially the balancing of the risk against them, as you quite rightly pointed out, with the economy, how how is that being played out um, by uh, government statisticians, government mathematicians and uh, and uh, public health advisors. Um, and how are they applying human rights in that context? And there's an a- there's an age discrimination yeah. Yeah. A- aspect I- here and disability discrimination aspect. I mean, I think that's a very important point. I think it was very striking that um, in his first kind of uh, state of the nation on COVID-19, Boris Johnson basically talked about people will lose their loved ones. You know, they're regrettably expendable. And I would say that the most fundamental thing that a human rights analysis or framing of COVID-19 brings to the table is that there is no one who is regrettably expendable if something can be done to prevent it. Or, or more expendable, or, or that there's no that there's no hierarchy of people where we are willing to sacrifice. That, and that, that's what it comes down to in, in this in this in this calculation, doesn't it? It's. I think it's about not looking at the people who might die as kind of individuals with specific problems that, as Nicola was saying, render them more vulnerable. And hence, well, you know, they were old, they didn't have that much time left, or they had underlying health conditions, or they were, and I've heard this, you know, on Twitter, they were disabled. I mean, what quality of life are we talking about? The trouble with COVID-19 and the trouble with some aspects of the state response, and certainly the political and media discourse around it, has been the view that some, some people are less valuable than other people, or perceived as being less valuable than other people. And unfortunately, the nature of the state response, which hasn't been to prioritise and accord protection to particularly vulnerable groups, appears to bear this out. And that has huge, raises huge issues and problems from a human rights perspective. And 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 just look, going back to something Jude said earlier, comparing this to the HIV crisis, and I guess it's something that we all um, remember the, 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 the darkness around that. But, you know, the, was there an element there as well of, in, amongst broader society is, yes, this is something to be very worried about, but is it really a group that as a society we are we are particularly worried about, you know, and, and, and it brought out a lot of discriminatory attitudes towards um, towards people who were homosexual or people who were perceived as being at more risk. And I think that, that it's not quite the same here, but there is an element of even in subconsciously thinking, well, if it's people with underlying health conditions, if it's people who are over 70, then that's bad, but it'd be much worse if it was if it was people in their 20s or children or, you know, however, whatever calculus we apply. I mean, what you're seeing, Adam, is whether, you know, and you say people perhaps aren't aware they're doing, but what we're seeing is societal disabilism and ageism laid bare. Because the fact that someone, the fact that we have a situation in which, you know, if there were children dying, the response, the language, the urgency around this would be so high. So it is very clear that there is something that makes government and other decision makers feel that this is not something that needs to be prioritised in the way that it would be for other groups. And we can't, you know, we can talk about unconscious bias this or unconscious bias that, but basically what we're looking at is a manifestation of disabilism and ageism. And and it's been brought to the fore by COVID-19, these very unpleasant threads that underpin, you know, key elements of our society and societal thinking. Yeah, not great if you're over 70, as I can attest from... I mean, we knew from late January, really, about um, how serious this would be. This is all, you know, the messages were coming out of China. They were coming from the WHO. And and the UK government uh, had such a troubling um, response in terms of, firstly, let's take it on the chin. Let's have herd, herd immunity, idea of herd immunity. Um, And, um, you know, 
knowing, as, as Boris Johnson said, even though you might not have had the figures at, at, at that point, but a lot of people would die, mostly elderly and people with underlying health conditions. This is a really big issue f- for human rights, particularly for the right to life and the right to health. And, you know, we're going to need, and this has been a point again made by Richard Horton, we're going to need a, a really serious review of, of how the decisions were made um, and, um, and, and, you know, what, what, what went wrong. And, and I think that human rights have to be an absolutely central part of, of that review. Just, just coming in, um, I very much agree with the uh, sentiments that have been expressed on this, and I'm conscious that the uh, WHO Director General uh, was quoted recently as saying that some countries, in his view, deem the coronavirus threat less worthy of the best efforts to contain it because those who are most affected are senior or older people. And it is a real example of othering in the way we discussed right at the outset. So with AIDS being considered uh, by some as the gay plague, it was thought of as something that affects other people. And it was part of that vilification of other people. And I I think, for me, one of the things which I found most horrifying in the past few weeks, uh, and which goes to the point Aoife makes about this being ageism and disabilism laid bare, uh, was the question from Beth Rigby, the journalist, um, which was not answered in the government press conference the other day, uh, about whether or not Boris Johnson had made a joke about Operation Last Gasp at an event the previous day. And uh, it, that is a horrifying phrase to use and to make light of uh, the need, the urgent need to create ventilators. And uh, that is something which is a very extreme example of this being considered something which affects other people, older people and people who are not as worthy uh, as the population at large. People who don't contribute to the economy. And, 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 that, and that goes back to that point, doesn't it? Yeah, let us, let us also look to the really distressing situation that Italy has faced. Um, another country which um, didn't take uh, measures um, perhaps as quickly as, as, as they should have done for, for, for various reasons. But where we now have a situation where um, there's more demand for care than can be supplied and on the front lines of care, um, we have um, health professionals um, incredibly overworked um, and having to make the most horrendous decisions about who to treat and and who not to treat. And this really should have, um, you know, in, in the UK, this is a situation that could have been foreseen and it may well be a situation which, uh, you know, arises here as, as it, because action hasn't been taken quickly enough. And, and for me, that's a, that's a, you know, real dereliction of, of duty on the part of the government. Thank you so much to Judith, Nicola, Keelan and Aoife for a really interesting and important discussion. You can hear part two, which will be coming in the next few days. In the meantime, the podcast is kindly supported by Goldsmiths Law. And with Goldsmiths' rich heritage of social awareness and engagement, you'll study with students and academics passionate about human rights and social justice. Please do consider chipping in a few pounds to keep this podcast going. Patreon.com forward slash better human. Thank you, as always, to my research producer, Natasha Holcroft Eames, and the podcast editor, Samantha Bruff. See you next time for part two of this episode. I've been Adam Wagner. This is the Better Human Podcast. Hold up. 